0: Before we get into another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box Two Six Two Zero Six. Jacksonville, Florida 32226 Thanks again Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast Enjoy
1: Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast I'm your host, Lisa Fields I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project We're live for another episode of the G Three Project podcast, and as always, I'm Lisa Fields, the founder of the G Three Project. And today, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. John Sinsbach. Welcome, Dr. Sinsbach.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation to participate, and uh, uh, and it's an exciting opportunity. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm excited uh, first to have this conversation today. For those who um, don't know who you are, can you just give a little bit of background?
2: Well, um, I'm a professor of history at the University of Florida, Gainesville, Florida. I'm a native of Virginia, and I went to uh, Duke University for my doctorate degree in history, early American history, colonial history. And uh, then after finishing that, I, I lived in Mississippi for a few years. I taught at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg for several years. Then I moved to here to Gainesville in 1998 um, and have been here ever since. So I teach classes in American history, colonial history, religious history, history of the African slave trade, and uh, things, things like that. So, um, so that's that's what I do.
1: Awesome! Well, I'm excited to have you to talk about this book. I, um, a friend of mine introduced me to this book last week, so uh, I'm excited to be able to get you on. About, uh, I, I was telling him I, you were going to be on the podcast. He was like, "That was quick." Um, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: <laughs>
1: I'm excited that you agreed to take this time with us today. Tell our um what in, what made you want to write this book, uh, Rebecca's Revival?
2: Well, let's see if I if you don't mind, I'll just show a a cover a picture of the cover of the book. There it is, Rebecca's Revival, and uh it's and the subtitle is Creating Black Christianity in the Atlantic World, and it tells the story of a an unknown woman named Rebecca Proton who I believe was the first uh, ordained woman of African descent in in the African Christian tradition, uh, at, at least in the Protestant tradition. Um, I, I stumbled upon her story uh, years ago, and I kind of filed it away, and and I thought, well, that, that's sort of an interesting story. And then some time came available, and I and I was able to look into it. It basically it tells the story of of. Um, the sort of the earliest, the formation of the earliest uh, black Protestant congregations in the new world in the 18th century, and I argue in the book that she, was well, that Re- Rebecca herself um, was a driving force in the rise of these Christian congregations, we're talking about the 1730s, 1740s, and, and uh, just to explain a little bit about the context of the book, this happened in the, in the Caribbean In what was then a Danish colony, it's now the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John. Coincidentally, islands that have just been recently devastated by Hurricanes Irma and and Andrew. Um, And and so this is where she led her Christian revival among the slaves of that that population. At the time, it was a a sugar-growing colony, like many of the Caribbean islands were, and she... Uh, she was herself a slave early in life. She was born in Antigua, and then the records tell us that she was sold as a slave while still a young girl on the island of St. Thomas, and she happened to be um, purchased by a a Dutch family. They taught her some of the rudiments of Christianity. They taught her to read, so she had literacy. Uh, She also had the favor of this family that seemed to support her education they seem to have granted her her freedom around about the age of thirteen or fourteen or so, and then she uh, she fell in with a group of German-speaking missionaries from the Moravian Brotherhood from Germany, who came to the island in the 1730s and began preaching among the slaves. They couldn't gain any traction among the slaves, but they did they did make. Uh, a, a convert with with Rebecca. She The records tell us that she uh, was attracted to their message of evangelical appeal. She joined them, and they immediately designated her an elder or a, or a female missionary to go out among the slaves on the island to preach. And she was very successful at recruiting people, especially women, to come in and join the church. And, th- and this, I believe, was what we can say was the origin of the very first uh, Black Protestant congregation in the New World. So uh, I uh, came across this story years ago, and I, as I said, I, I, uh, I made a vow to myself I would go back and look at it in some detail later on. The result was that I was able to go to the Moravian Church Archive in Germany and sink myself into the records there, and I found a lot of references to Rebecca and to the mission that she led and that led me to to want to elaborate on her story in a more full way. So that that's sort of a long-winded explanation of how I got into this.
1: <laughs> awesome. And I had never heard of, of her uh, before my friend introduced me to the book. I've heard of uh, like Jarena Lee in, um, exactly. in mm-hmm. the U.S., but I never heard of Rebecca. So uh, this was refreshing um, to meet her, a, a woman that kind of led a movement. How did she, is there any record showing how she reconciled um, slavery and her faith?
2: Well, that's, that's sort of the central question, isn't it? Um, I got interested in this larger question because, because of the, the standing contradiction that historians have been aware of for a long, long time, and that has been explored by historians and Theologians like Howard Thurman, like James Cone, uh, Albert Raboteau, and many others, about how it is that, that a religion, a Christian religion, that as preached by and believed in by white people was a religion of racism, of slavery, of racial hierarchy. How did that religion come to be the religion of enslaved people? Uh, why is it that they claimed this religion and made it their own and and a religion born in racism became an, an an inverted religion a religion of freedom of liberation of 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 racial uh equality and and and, and, and uplift um so that that's the, that's the essential question and that's what got me interested in this uh, rebecca herself as i said was was born a slave she gained her freedom um and and so she was working with these white Moravian missionaries in the 1730s and 1740s. They themselves came from this Protestant tradition within the Moravian Church of spiritual equality, outreach to all people, a belief that that the gospel transcended skin color in matters of faith, but they themselves also... You know embraced this paradox of Christianity, which is that they also believed in slavery. They came from a tradition of social hierarchy in Germany. They believed that, like most white Christians at the time, that slavery had been ordained by God, and that social hierarchy was ordained by God, some were born to serve and others born to lead, and so on um, so 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 Rebecca worked within this tradition and and uh, and so she herself. I think had to make some hard choices about this. she She had this commitment toward Christianity. She seems to have believed genuinely that Christianity was a a religion of spiritual equality that 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 the gospel was intended for everybody, and she made it her mission in life to preach to enslaved people. At the same time, the missionaries, and Rebecca herself, I believe, came to understand they never would have been able to preach that message in this slave society without being persecuted unless they made some reconciliation with slavery. The the planters, the government officials would have said, we're not going to allow you to preach here if you preach overtly that, that Christianity is a, is a, is a doctrine of liberation for, for black people. So they had to make this reconciliation and say, well, okay, in order for the ability to reach out to the slaves and to preach to them, we have to lay back on the anti-slavery stuff. And But the, that paradox meant that the missionaries themselves, in time, actually bought slaves, bought a sugar plantation, and began producing sugar for the world capitalist market with the same fellowship of enslaved brothers and sisters who were in the congregation were also their plantation workers. So the, the paradox was not resolved. Let's put it that way. The paradox lingered on. But the, then the question remains, well, what about those enslaved brothers and sisters? What did they think about this? Well, um, we, the, the records are, are contradictory as well, but they seem to have embraced this idea that Christianity was and could be a religion that would give them a sense of spiritual equality. It gave them a critique of of the white slaveholders that they expressed to each other. And and that critique was that Christianity is a religion for us, that Jesus died as much for us as he did for you, the whites. There are records in here, in the Moravian doctrine, in the Moravian documents there that explain that, quote, uh, enslaved black Christians saying, um, uh, actually uh, going up to white slaveholders and, and accusing them of being unchristian and saying, I'm going to heaven and you're not. And,
0: yes. and that's
2: a powerful thing. That, that's a very courageous act. It's a powerful thing. And as we know, that becomes the kernel of this Afro-Christian religion that develops in the 18th and early 19th century. Jarena Lee, as you mentioned, and, and other evangelicals, Embrace this message that, that we the enslaved, we the the forgotten, the abused, the the outcast people of the world are the real Christians, and you slaveholders are not. And we may you may be going to hell, but we're not gonna see you there. And and that's that, that was the ultimate message. And so uh, I I make the argument that in this place in St. Thomas small island in the Caribbean that this early message of redemptive equality was developed and became very influential for later, for the development of of Black uh, theological thought among the Methodists, the Baptists, and other groups who adopted a similar way of thinking.
1: Gotcha. Did they use, did they use, uh, because when I'm thinking about uh, them, her partnering with the slaveholders to preach the message of the gospel uh, to uh, African slaves. My my immediately goes to Nat Turner and how mm-hmm. Nat Turner was kind of uh forced to preach a message that kind of they wanted to kind of keep the slaves in check. Um, did they give Rebecca the freedom or did they kind of uh restrict her message? Uh,
2: I I think both. I I mean I think that again that that they the white missionaries and Rebecca herself understood that they could not they could not explicitly say uh christianity will set you free that this is uh that we're not preaching slave rebellion here what they were preaching was a kind of christian transcendence uh, of spiritual spiritual um uh, chosenness that that we we enslaved people um are are, are are the people chosen by god to, 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 to be the full bearers of, of of his message, and and that and that Christ, the suffering servant, died for us. I, so I think in that regard, they they were explicit about what Christianity could and could not achieve. They they were they were wary of a. This is a hundred years before Nat Turner, of course, but they were wary of preaching a message that could be interpreted as an overt message of slave rebellion. And they again, they did not want to offend the planters because they knew that they would be thrown out of the island. Um, but but I would say that part of part of um, Rebecca's own biography bears this message out. Uh, she was a, a woman of color. Of, of uh, apparently, her father was a white planter. Her mother was an African slave. She so she was of mixed uh, racial heritage herself. She married one of the white missionaries. Oh. And this interracial marriage was a tremendous affront to the planting aristocracy on the island. So they had the two of them arrested and brought to trial and charged with sedition of preaching an, an incendiary message to the slaves of, 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 of uh, spreading an, uh, a doctrine of equality through this biracial marriage. Of trying to undermine the entire slave society, so they were brought on trial, and those trial documents have survived and proved a crucial source that I drew upon in the book. and, and Rebecca was forced to testify, and they said, "Rebecca, it w- we'll throw you in jail unless you renounce your marriage and admit that you have been spreading an incendiary message to the slaves." And she refused to do that, so so she stood her ground as a Christian woman and and spread, uh, you know, said, I'm, "I'm standing here by my faith." and almost like Martin Luther had done a couple hundred years earlier with his, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. And uh, and so they threw her in jail and uh, she stayed in jail for nine months and they were going to sell her back into slavery. Uh, miraculously, the leader of the church came, showed up unannounced from Europe at that point and was able to bail her out of of, of, of jail. But But that does seem to indicate that she and her message were regarded as very dangerous in that society, and and so that that was one of the things that forced the Rebecca and the Moravian missionaries to realize that maybe we need to back off on this a little bit more so so I, I guess, in other words, it was very much a contingent message on we, we need to reach these enslaved people and and give them a sense that you know that Christianity is for them, but at the same time. We can't encourage slave rebellion, or we'll all we'll all be punished for it.
0: because
1: mm-hmm. I imagine, as you said that that produced the 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 slavery produced capital, and, That's um, right. That's right. and at the end of the day, they had a faith, but they had uh, more of an interest in protecting their assets than maybe living out their faith in a complete way.. Um,
2: it, from, from our standpoint, that would seem to be the case, wouldn't it? Uh, from a modern 21st century standpoint. From, from their standpoint, they seem to have made a kind of compromise with power that they felt would enable them to preach their message. But at the same time, yeah, it, it would seem to be a doctrine that, that embraced or, or at least made a peace with slavery at a time when, the, you know, they're trying to reach enslaved people. So, so again, the question comes back, well, what about the slaves themselves? Why would they, why would they embrace this message? Why, would they, why wouldn't they just call the missionaries out on this hypocrisy and say, no, we're not going to do this? And, and again, I think it's because they, they seem to have understood and embraced this message the, of what the missionaries were trying to say uh, that you know that the Christianity is this message of redemption that that you are the chosen people and 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 that there is a kind of sacred power in this message. Um, many of the enslaved people that they were speaking to were themselves African, recent forced migrants come over on the slave trade, and and still presumably believing in their African religions, and yet they were some of the ones who were the most fervent in 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 embracing the Christian faith, which is not to say that they totally abandoned their African religions, but rather that they seem to have seen the Moravian mission as a way to gain some strategic advantages, a chance of of learning to read and write. Uh, There are many instances of of people being uh, receiving literacy lessons from the Moravians. And so they and many of them left written messages that they themselves wrote. And, and so that's one strategic advantage, another is that if you if you join the religion of your of your master you give you you give yourself a basis upon which to critique that master's power, and that okay. seems to have been part of part of the appeal as well so so what I'm trying to do in the book is to explore the contradiction of the slavery. Religion thing, but also to ex- to try to explore the question of why the slaves themselves would have embraced it rather than just simply rejecting it out of hand. and And that's that's my conclusion is that they seem to have found this religion of of salvation in Christianity that that they might not have considered otherwise.
1: Mm. That's interesting. As you were talking, um, I was struck by what you said about kind of trying to understand the worldview of the slave owners um, to kind of critique them, uh, understanding what their systems and what governs them um, to be able to say, if I read through this book and see that you're inconsistent um, with what you say you hold to be true, then I have a basis, like you said, to critique you. I think that's something that I've never thought about before, but I think that's, that's, that's very interesting.
2: Well, if we, if we look at some of the famous um, ex-slave narratives like Olaudah Equiano, certainly uh, Frederick Douglass, um, Mary Prince, other, other famous narratives that they all, many of them, uh, have this critique of white Christianity. They, they all say, you Christians, nominal Christians, how can you pretend to be True Christians, if you 're holding your fellow man and woman in, in slavery and, and so there's a real denunciation, but then they also say Christianity can have an important message for enslaved people themselves and and as we know in in the antebellum South that thousands of, of enslaved people uh, worshipped either in kind of clandestine secrecy, uh, they, you know they, they coded many of their messages in the spirituals of, of running away to Canaan land and, and so on and and so and so this this powerful message survives within slavery for hundreds of years before emancipation occurs and so we that's that's the essential question is why did it do that? If Christianity, which is simply a a religion of the slaveholders and a religion of slavery and racism, what was the appeal and 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 so we know that it that it that survived um, in, in in many many secret ways and you know secret hush harbors and and, and slave people would you know go out at, at night and have worship services on their own and you know led by their own preachers and Nat Turner's and, and other even if they weren't rebels at least they were they were preaching this this message of empowerment. And and so so um, that's th- that remains to me the fundamental question is why did they do it? Why did this thing survive? Why did it why was it seemingly so powerful in a in such an oppressive slave driven society, what, what gave this message of hope such uh, seeming clarity?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting question. Cause I think about, um, we recently did a, a episode um, on um, the uh, kind of growth of West African religions mm-hmm. in African American context here in, in America. Mm-hmm. And um it's interesting because they had the indigenous religion from Africa and they chose to kind of abandon that when they got here and now there is many who are going back to that um and so it's just interesting the the switch there
2: yeah yeah that's right uh huh uh huh i mean it's interesting the kinds of particularly in this in this uh context of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries where it's such a A powerfully oppressive society that that the the Christianity is one, and and religion itself is is one vehicle. With it, it it provides the opportunity to understand and explore the very difficult choices that people had to make in their personal lives, in the faith choices that they made, and the way they lived their lives to to deal with that. Um, How to how to get by? How to survive? What what are the what are the physical, the, the mental, the spiritual tools that we need to get through this incredibly brutal and dehumanizing experience? And, I mean, the, the famous, um, you know, phrase about using the, the master's tools to tear down his house and to build your own house. That's, I mean, I think that's part of the equation here is to um, to this, this this powerful sense that, Christianity is the religion for me, not in spite of my being enslaved and damned and forgotten, but because I'm enslaved and damned and forgotten. It's my Christianity it's going to set me free and that makes you by definition an unchristian unholy person and I'm, I'm going to lay that out there and that's a powerful critique and the slaveholders had to develop their own critique, you know counter critique to say, well, you know Christianity is it's it's good because it, it teaches the slaves to be subservient and we're doing this good paternalistic Christian master thing to to uh, take care of the slaves and be good masters to them. And and so there, there there's it's a powerful intellectual argument that goes back and forth. And and from our perspective, of course, we, we like to think that the slaves have the better of it and that their critique was on point and 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 this liberation theology that was hatched hundreds of years ago was sustained and survived for all that time. And, 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 and so to get at that right in the heart of this contradictory slavery situation is still remains a powerful intellectual um, inquiry, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, very, very much. So what else struck you about the Rebecca's life?
2: Well, uh, one other thing that I wanted to, to explore in this book was the role of uh, women of African descent in Generating this powerful movement of Afro-Christianity. Um, and and uh, as I said, she was designated a, a powerful spiritual leader and, uh, and a missionary among the enslaved people. They, they were trying to preach themselves to uh to, to the slaves, and they, they didn't speak the language, they had difficulty getting access. Here come these strange missionaries into this society they don't understand. They try to reach out their Their intentions may have been good, but they try to reach out to these people and they, they can't get through. And so, so they eagerly, you know, reached out to Rebecca at the same time that she reached out to them and they, they said, look, you have to be our missionary among the women. And because she could speak the language because she understood what they were trying to do and she understood where the slaves were coming from. And so, it was through her female ministry that she was able to reach out and pull hundreds of uh, enslaved African and, and and Afro-Caribbean women into this movement by presumably, you know, preaching this lesson of, of equality and inclusiveness. Um, and, and so my, my, one of the arguments I make in the book is that the missionaries could never have succeeded without the efforts of, Of of the um, Afro Caribbean people themselves, they were the ones that drove this this ministry, this mission. They she was not alone. There were dozens of others who who were in charge of you know going onto the plantations and reaching out. And in particular, women were important. And the congregational records tell us that something like sixty to seventy percent of the congregation members were themselves women. And this is historically, this is borne out transhistorically, cross-culturally, is that in religious movements, wherever they may be, and, and wherever they may be, that, that women form the majority of, of the congregants or the, you know, whoever's participating. And, and so uh, she, she was on the forefront. This was largely female-driven movement. The white missionaries themselves were doing what they were doing, but this is a female-driven movement. And and so I wanted to call attention to that reality. And again, to to mention the Jarena Lee example, um, you can also point to uh, you know a number of other examples in the American South or you know, wherever North America of of women preachers going out and, and leading this this movement. Um, you know, you know Jarena Lee famously calls out you know Bishop Allen, where he says, "Hey, I don't I don't think women really should be leading this," and and she very respectfully. You know, disagrees and says, "Well, actually, you know, I have just as much a call to preach as you do, and uh, and I'm going to do it, and you can't stop me." And, and and so I think Rebecca was very similar to that. And so this this is what I wanted to call attention to. Um, and I, I was I happened to be, and and so again, if this is if this is sort of the earliest Black Protestant congregations in the world, they still survive, they still are active. I think that a number of the probably the members have been damaged and hurt by the recent storms in the Caribbean. But I was I was there several years ago and visited this this early church, original building from the 1730s. The congregation is still there, still very active. And um, you know, again, it was a similar situation where probably 60 to 70 percent of the membership was female. All the leadership positions in the church, most of them were female. The female minister. Assistant pastors. They were all women, and in a sense, this this tradition of female preaching and ministry and leadership and education has, has endured for close to three hundred years, direct congregation uh, lineage from Rebecca all the way up to the present. So that that's another thing that I wanted to highlight with this book.
1: That's awesome. That's that's awesome. I, I think that's so uh, interesting. that the whole story just. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that I didn't know about her earlier.
2: <laughs> well, that, that's why I wrote the books to, to, <laughs> to, to, to let people know about it. Um, I also, uh, she had an incredible life in some other ways, which are that, as I mentioned, she married this white guy, they were thrown into jail. They were, they were rescued. After that she moved to Germany and lived in Germany for 20 years. Uh, living in this Moravian community in central Germany, her first husband died. Then she married another guy named Christian Proten. He himself uh, was born in Africa on the on the Gold Coast, uh, an African mother and a Danish father, and 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 he was brought. He was raised in Africa for the first ten years, and then after that, he went to Denmark to receive a Christian education in Denmark. And then that's, so he met Rebecca then and they got married and then they moved to Ghana, to, to Accra, what was then uh, Accra, um, uh, for, for a mission there in the 1760s. And, and that's where Rebecca lived out her life and, and died in the 1780s as a, as a missionary in West Africa. And and so she had this incredible sort of reverse transatlantic life, you know, where you think of enslaved Africans coming by the millions to to the new world under forced conditions she represented in very small way a, a kind of a reverse migration that ended in, in Africa and and where she was preaching you know still the gospel up until the very end of her life and and so um, in, in some ways it's an extraordinary story of mobility of 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 retaining her Christian ideals till the very end of of preaching and organizing wherever she went, in in the Caribbean, in Germany, in Africa, uh, an extraordinary, very unusual life.
1: Yes, that is extraordinary (laughs) indeed. (laughs) That's amazing uh, that she was able to do that. How was she received among men, African men?
2: African men. That's a really interesting question. Uh, African men in... In, in Africa or in the West Indies or wherever,
1: Indies. when she because I know you said she had a lot of success among the the women. I, I was wondering how was she received
2: amongst the men. Amongst the men, um, I I think um, probably pretty well. I mean, I think that again she was uh, she was put in charge of the female half of the mission, so that was the main focus of her ministry. But she also, I think. Um, had a kind of respect that transcended gender, and and we, she was seen as a crucial go-between, a crucial sort of interme- intermediary between the enslaved population and the missionaries. She she was she was you know the one that everybody went to, and and every, everybody knew her. Everybody she's not famous today because her name has sort of been lost to history, but in that place, that time relatively small island, she was she was really famous, and, and I think that she had a certain cachet that enabled her to move around. There were other um, African men and Afro-Caribbean men who did similar things to Rebecca, going among the enslaved male population and preaching, and so so it was very much a, a ministry that depended, as I said earlier, on the, the enslaved and free black people themselves going out and, and preaching. Again, the, the white missionaries were sort of you know, kind of, uh, they were, they were um, very much dependent on people of color going and preaching among themselves. And in that regard, I think Rebecca had a a fairly high level of respect among everybody.
1: Mm -hmm. And and did she have as much success in Africa that she had in the West Indies?
2: No, no, she did not. Um, They didn't have the infrastructure there. Uh, The, 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 the situation is quite different in that they were stationed in Accra, which was a Danish slave trading center. And so the, the main focus of that building uh, it was a castle called Christiansborg. It was, it was the main focus of that building was to get enslaved people in and put them on board a ship and take them out. So those were very difficult conditions for Rebecca and her husband, Christian, to make any kind of progress. They did run a school for mixed-race children, children of of Danish fathers and African women. That was the main thing that they did. They they, they ran a school there. Um, The the records don't indicate how much success they had in that endeavor, uh, whether how much education they were able to spread, whether that involved kind of Christian doctrine. the, The records are much more vague for that part of their mission than for the West Indies. So in terms of a long-term legacy, it's difficult to say, although, although some historians have argued that that, that that school that they ran proved the basis of Ghanaian education in the 19th century under British colonial rule, that that school endured provided the basis of Ghanaian education under British rule. And so in some sense paved the way for the long-term project of Ghanaian independence in the 20th century. Some Ghanaian historians make that, that argument, uh, you know, and that's worth considering. Um, but, but, uh, but in any case, we could say that Rebecca was involved in this kind of multi-continental effort to, to preach. And, you know, I think she believed till the very end that education was the way out and and we have the benefit of having some of her own letters written in her own hand which is very difficult to find in the 18th century letters written by women of African descent are very rare and we have several letters that she wrote and uh and they were they've been invaluable in in my investigation of this because it they do give some insight into her mindset and why she felt that that she that her life was a test God was putting a test before her and that God had chosen her for some special mission in life. And that mission was to preach. And 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 so we, f- we find that in her own hand. And that's that's an important testimony.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been a great interview. I enjoyed this. This might go down as one of my favorites um, because I have learned so much. And I could sit here and talk to you all day about this because it's, it's so much there in her life is really amazing. Um, just hearing you talk about her, I'm excited just to learn more o- about her. Being a woman myself in ministry, uh, I, I, I can identify with so many things that you, you've articulated. So I'm so thankful um, for your time with us today. How can people get this book, Re- Rebecca's Revival?
2: Well, um, they, they can get it on Amazon or they can contact the publisher, um, at uh, Harvard university press, or they can contact me at the university of Florida and I will give them directions how to, how to get it. And, uh, at your favorite, um, local booksellers, hopefully, but, but, uh, it it is, um, yeah, it's, I think it still remains kind of an inspiring story with a lot of, a lot of personal life, you know, has a lot of, um, Lessons that, that, you know, that uh, in our modern age we can still consider to be important and that there, her struggles, her fortitude, her sense of of um, calm in the face of, of adversity, all these kinds of things, I think, still, still um, are worth considering today for our troubled times, shall we say.
1: Yes, definitely. How can people get in contact with you? Um, are you uh, on Facebook, Twitter?
2: Uh you know, I'm not I'm not uh technologically <laughs> <laughs> up at the times, I'm afraid. Um if they if they Google my name, John Sensbach, S-E-N-S-B-A-C-H at the University of Florida History Department, uh, the my my email will be on there and so they can get in touch that way.
1: Awesome. Thank you so so much. I, okay. I'm thankful that you took the time to research and write this book, it's truly a blessing. And the information you shared with us was amazing.
2: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate the, the chance to to share her story with your audience and uh, and I appreciate all that you do.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.ju3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher.